Would you all bow with me and let's pray. Father, it's been a really, really good to focus our sights upon you, to uh, sharpen our minds, tenderize our hearts in worship before you. Uh, Lord, to sing, to be sung to, <clears throat> to be with each other here and in our venues and other campuses. It's just, it feels good to be the body of Christ here in this place today. And so I pray that as we now turn to your word and talk about topics that are really important to our lives as we intersect regularly, uh, ongoingly with you through faith, I pray, God, that you might be pleased with this time and that you might give us the, the mind of Christ and the wisdom that comes from your spirit. That's what we ask, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as many of you know, we're in a series right now over conflict. We're talking about conflict here at our church. <clears throat> and each week, the uh, pastoral staff has kind of put together a, a little video for us that I got in trouble in our evaluation meeting this week by calling them silly. They're not silly, they're funny. And so uh, I let you guys be the judge. I think it's actually a great video this, today's week that just kind of sets up this idea of conflict over the gray. Uh, and I, I hope it makes it through. We had a problem with it last hour, and so they didn't get to see the end of it, but they've assured me they've worked on it. So uh, look up here on the screen. Let's give this a go. The ESV. N-A-S-B. N-I-V. N-L-T. King James. New King James? The message. Have you ever been part of a church suffering from Bible translation conflict? Hi, my name is Troy Peterson, and I'm here to talk to you about the dangers of BTC. BTC is a major organizational disorder that leads to disunity, fear, hopelessness, and in some cases, even male pattern baldness. We here at Scottsdale Bible Church believe that with your help, we can put an end to BTC with the introduction of our proprietary, patented, and totally gluten-free Bible translation. The new, but still kind of old, reformed, Rasmussen-approved Scottsdale Bible translation is coming to our bookstore soon. Get your copy of the NBS K-O-O-R-R-A-S-B-C-T today and put an end to BTC. Be set free from BTC. All right, so maybe it's silly and funny. I don't know, but it, it communicates the idea of what we're trying to do today, and that's to talk about conflict over gray area issues, like, as we just saw, uh, Bible translations. You know, I've been in churches, and Scottsdale Bible is one of them that has some people feel very, very strongly about the translation of the Bible you use. And though I use a particular one, as I've said for years, I, at the end of the day, I just want you reading the Bible, right? I, I mean, that's my end-up goal, so I try not to bicker too much uh, about what translation, at least within reason. Here's what I need you to do with me to start getting thinking about this idea of conflict over the gray. And that is, I want you to think right now about a conflict that you're having with somebody, say, in your life right now, or that you just got through with, or maybe even a big one that you have had over the last couple of years. So maybe with a spouse, a friend, a family member, a coworker, just conflict, a fellow student, conflict that you've had with somebody. Get it in your mind. And then let me ask you the uh, $10 question. Was or is the issue between this person and you that you're having conflict with over a clear black and white issue, so much so that a third party would come in and say, this is a no-brainer. She's wrong and you're right, or he's wrong and you're right, whatever it be, it's just black and white. Or is the issue not so black and white? Might it be what we call gray? Where though you believe that you are right and you're sticking to your guns, most reasonable people would say that there's some gray involved. Which is it for the conflict that you're thinking about right now or you're having right now? Is it black and white or gray? Because here's what I've observed over 25 years of being a pastor, and that is that the vast majority of conflicts that we have in our lives are clearly gray. 
I mean, nine times out of ten, when somebody comes into my office and asks my advice on a conflict that they're having, I'm telling you, rarely is it 90-10. Rarely is it 80-20. It's almost always either 50-50 or at best 60-40. And why is that true? Because we all know it takes two to tango. We all know that we are all mistake-ridden, fallen people, and when we have conflict, it's usually not clear-cut. It's usually over an issue that at the end of the day, we're going to learn today to call a gray area issue. So anecdotally, here's an example. I've been married for almost 26 years, and Kim and I have hardly ever argued over whether the resurrection of Jesus happened or not, a black and white issue. But we have argued over how to raise our kids. We have argued over how to spend money, gray area issues. Uh, on staff here uh, with our pastors, I hardly ever argue with them over the authority of Scripture or whether it's sunny a lot in Arizona black and white issues. But we do bicker back and forth on the best way to run a church. We do bicker back and forth on certain theological gray area issues. Are you starting to get the idea? I hardly ever argue with somebody about whether the Browns are going to go to the Super Bowl. That die is cast. I mean, for like 50 years, that die is cast. This year's better, but eh, they're probably not going to go to the Super Bowl. But I do argue with people over how I treat them and how they treat me. Are you starting to see a pattern here? The vast majority of the things that you and I have conflict over with people is clearly things that are gray, they're hazy, they're foggy, they're hard to see in and through, and that's why we have conflict. And so as we continue our fall series on conflict here at our church, specifically bouncing off of Jesus' conflict, as found in the second chapter of Mark, here's the first thing that we learn before us today in the story that we're going to look at today. And we've been establishing it so far today, but let's just put it out there. And that is that conflict over the gray, it happens. In fact, I would submit to you that it happens more often than not. It's the most common kind of conflict. And Jesus is going to show us this right now. I want you to look at how our story begins here in Mark chapter 2. We're going to be looking at just a few verses today, verses 23 to 28. So if you have a Bible, we're going to park in front of this, our time this morning here. And, and let me just read for you the first two verses. If you don't have a Bible, then it's in your outline or you can look up here on the screen. Here's how it begins. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And now, to understand this particular conflict scenario, because Mark 2 is all about conflict, uh, just notice that there's an action by Jesus and the disciples here, and then a reaction or response by the Pharisees, the religious leaders. You got an action and a response. And the action is that on a Sabbath day, which as many of us know is a day of rest, back in the Old Testament and into the New, where the Jewish culture would rest from Friday evening to Saturday evening. Uh, on this particular Sabbath day, Jesus and his disciples were walking through a field. We know from our understanding of that culture that it was either a wheat or grain or barley field, some type of grain, and that as they were walking through this field, probably in springtime when harvest was there, they started to pick some of the heads of grain to help themselves to a snack. That's the innocent activity that Jesus and his disciples were doing. And though some of you might say, well, gosh, that's stealing, it's not. Uh, believe it or not, in that culture back then, if you were in somebody else's grain field, which you could be, the law actually provided that you could take some grain that you picked by hand for a snack, and the law actually encouraged it. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, it says this, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain, which simply means you can't harvest your neighbor's grain and sell it because that would be stealing, but good old-fashioned Jewish hospitality dictated that if you were walking through a neighbor's field, you could take what you could with your hand as a snack, and that was not only legit, it was encouraged. This is the action 
of Jesus and his disciples walking through this field on a Sabbath, snitching a little grain. And by the way, that's what it was called. It was called snitching versus reaping. Snitching in a positive way, actually. It was an encouraging word back then. But then notice the action that elicits, or notice the response that this action elicits. And that is that the Pharisees confront Jesus. Did you catch it? It says, and they were saying to him, look, which is kind of severe. And they confront him about breaking Sabbath law. So they're going to confront the Son of God about breaking the Father's law. Now, the first thing we need to understand here is how incredibly important the Sabbath was and is today still to the Jewish people and even to many Christians. Sabbath is this one day of rest out of seven days. It was the fourth commandment out of the Ten Commandments. It's a big deal. It was rooted in creation. God rested on the seventh day. And the Old Testament is crystal clear on multiple occasions that you are to rest on the Sabbath day. People that are stopped working, animals stop working, any visitors that are visiting you should not work. Even vegetation was given a rest when they would not do any planting or reaping or pruning. Everything and everybody rested on the Sabbath day. And the reason that this was so important and still is in many traditions is because it's what distinguishes you as the people of God. That like God who rests, you rest on the Sabbath day. And so with this understanding, you can see why the Pharisees would get all bent out of shape with Jesus and what he was doing on the Father's Sabbath, right? Or can you? You see, this is where it gets a little bit gray. And we have to dig a little bit here to understand precisely what the Pharisees' issues were. You see, over the years, since the law had been given by Moses, the law on Sabbath, the Jewish religious leaders had established a voluminous amount of material on exactly how to live out and apply the law. In other words, as a bunch of religious leaders got together, they talked about exactly how should this law work and how should it apply in daily living. Eventually, they would codify these findings in a book called the Mishnah that came out in the second century AD. But in Jesus' day, it was very alive in oral form, this idea of the Mishnah, how to live out the law. And when it came to Sabbath keeping, get this, they had developed by Jesus' day 39 forbidden categories of work on the Sabbath. 39. And third on this list was reaping. You couldn't reap on the harvest day. And this makes sense because they didn't want you to work. And yet some of you are saying, well, Jesus wasn't reaping. He was snitching. He was just taking a little bit. And that was allowed by the law. Yeah, but they said that would be working on the Sabbath day. That was in the Mishnah. It would eventually be the third category where you're not allowed to even pick by hand stuff on the Sabbath day. As if this were not enough, number 39 on the list of forbidden things to do on the Sabbath was traveling. You couldn't travel on the Sabbath day because that would require energy and work. In fact, they had codified it so minutely that the Mishnah says, and I'm not making this up, this is really in there, that travel was defined as anything more than 1,999 steps or 800 meters. And so in the Pharisees' definition of what it meant to break the Sabbath, Jesus had two strikes against him. He was picking grain on the Sabbath, which they considered both reaping and snitching. That was work. And then secondly, because he was walking through a grain field, he was probably walking more than 800 meters because they were very large grain fields. He was traveling on the Sabbath. And before you know it, Jesus was caught right in the middle of conflict. But what you need to see is that by most people's definitions and standards, it was conflict over the gray. I mean, folks, who was to say what was work or not? I mean, when it came to the Sabbath, I mean, some things are clear and black and white as to what work is, tilling a field, making clothes, buying and selling goods, repairing your house. But these things are obviously work. But where is the line? I mean, could you pick grain on the Sabbath? The Pharisees said no, but who were they to define what that might mean? Could you mend a shirt on the Sabbath? That was a big issue back then. If you were on your way home from synagogue and your shirt ripped when you got home, could you mend it if it was the Sabbath day? The Mishnah says you could put one stitch in and no more. Anything else would be considered work. 
How about if when you were at synagogue, say your roof caved in and it was raining, could you fix it on the Sabbath? The Mishnah says you could prop it up, but you couldn't actually put any repairs in it until after the Sabbath. You see, they thought about all these things. So I love how one historical Bible expert puts it. Look up here on the screen. He says this. He says, the rabbis of Jesus' day endeavored to offer a rule or at least a precedent for every conceivable Sabbath question. He says the comprehensiveness of the tradition is revealed in the following rule. If a building fell down on the Sabbath, enough rubble could be removed to discover if there were any victims dead or alive. But if alive, they could be rescued. But if dead, the corpse needed to be left until sunset at the end of the Sabbath day. So please see, the conflict that Jesus was having, now here's the key, uh, was over a gray issue. And what this shows us here is that gray is defined as beginning with a clear truth. I mean, think about it. Almost every gray area you have in your life right now has some truth in it. That's why we call it gray. But over time, as it's been applied and as traditions have developed and as humanity and people have gotten involved in it, it's become gray. Give me a head now that you guys understand that. Almost all gray issues have truth involved in it, like don't break the Sabbath. But in the absence of every conceivable application, it becomes hazy how to live it out, how to apply it, how to interpret it. And before you know it, You've gone from clear to unclear, and that's why we call it gray. Gray is truth combined with human tradition, human application, and it's what we're stuck with today. There's a lot of gray. I mean, honestly, some of you are thinking right now, Jamie, as you describe like the Sabbath stuff, I can't believe how petty that is. I'm sure glad that we don't live like this today. I, I brought some props with me today that uh, have nothing to do with Sabbath. They have to do with our own gray area issues. So get ready for some of you to be offended right now. And I'm going to set these props out here, and then I'm going to walk you through each one of them. I'll just suffice, suffice it to say that most of these props have to do with um, three categories. Your lifestyle, uh, your beliefs, and then what we might call your relationships. So, so let me just walk you through these. Let's start with the most difficult one first for a lot of people. Uh, this is an empty bottle of wine. I, I got it from Neil. I was at his house the other day. <laughs> and, and, and the Bible is pretty clear. Here's the truth about wine. The Bible says, do not be drunk on wine, wear in excess, but rather be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5 verse 18. It's very clear that drunkenness is a sin that we need to be extremely careful with alcohol. Uh, but some of you have grown up in traditions and where it was taught to you that as a result of that, you should never, ever, ever drink alcohol, that it would be wrong to do so. The only problem is, is that that's theologically very hard to defend. Jesus turned water into wine. Paul said to Timothy, take a little bit of wine for your stomach. I mean, the evidence supports that back in especially uh, first century culture, uh, most of them drank wine. And I've heard every argument in the world against it. People said, well, it was basically glorified grape juice back then. It wasn't very fermented. And, and, and that Paul and them did it for medicinal purposes. And you've heard all that too. But at the end of the day, it still stands that they probably drank wine, but they were very careful to not ever get drunk because drunkenness takes you out of yourself and the spirit. And so what do we do with this today? I would simply submit to you that we have a truth today about this, but that it gets gray very fast. How much wine is enough? One glass? Two? Three? What if you have an alcoholic in your family? Does that change things? You bet. But what does that exactly mean? You see, I simply want you to see right now, we're going to talk about how to put this together in a minute, that, that this is a gray area. Some of you haven't seen it that way because you have very strong opinions about it. But nevertheless... From a biblical standpoint, it is. This is a, a, a box of a empty box of wheat thins. I didn't eat them. I just took out the packets in it. And uh, this just represents food. Uh, we all know that we all need food in order to survive. But do you know what the Bible says? Here's the clear truth. Gluttony is a sin. Overeating is a sin. 
It's actually one of the seven deadly sins according to the Catholic Church. And, and it's not healthy even from our Protestant tradition to overeat. That's the truth. But here's how fast it gets gray. How much is too much? And what kinds of food should we eat or not eat? I mean, today it's really vogue to say don't eat any carbs. And so today I know Christians that are like carbless in the way that they function in their lives. There's organic movements. You should only eat organic food. I mean, I simply need you to see you have a clear black and white principle in the Scripture, don't overeat, that gets gray as soon as you start to apply it in your life. This one's really hard. These are just a couple of movies here. Uh, and, and, and I got to tell you right now, if I stood up 40 years ago and uh, showed a couple of movies in church, I mean, just showed that I had movies in some conservative fundamentalist churches, the elders would have an immediate meeting after church to talk about their pastor. So what does that say? Well, movies are about entertainment. Entertainment's not bad, but you know what the Bible does say? Garbage in, garbage out. Amen? That's found in Second Hesitations chapter 5. The Bible does say in Philippians 4, chapter 8, that when it comes to how you think, you should think of things that are lovely, pure, good, and holy, that we need to dwell on such things. So the Bible is clear that you need to be careful what you put in your mind, but again, as soon as you go to apply that, I simply would suggest to you it gets gray kind of fast. I mean, should you avoid movies with violence, sexuality, swearing? Should you never watch an R-rated movie, PG-13, PG, or G? I mean, these are things that Christians have kind of disagreed over and had conflict over, and I simply would suggest that, again, it, it, it can be kind of gray. Uh, consider your beliefs. I, and I have my Bible here. You know what the Bible says? Doctrine matters. Doctrine matters greatly. We need to be men and women of truth. And yet entire denominations have been split over baptism. Do you know that? Whether you baptize infants or whether you baptize adults. We have Calvinists and we have Arminians in the church that are different persuasions of salvation. And the reality is, is that we all agree that the Bible is our truth source, but it can get gray rather fast. That we deal with gray issues even in the Bible. And then lastly, just consider your relationships that you have. I mean, this is a picture of my family, Kim and I, on our most favorite vacation that we ever took with the kids. It was to Jackson Hole in 2004. Just a memorable, memorable two weeks that we spent in Jackson. You know, this picture re reveals to me that the, the black and white biblical truth that I am to love my wife as Jesus loved the church and that I am to do my best with her to raise godly kids. Amen? That's the black and white truth. I've been doing that now for 25 years. And back in the 90s, I was told that I need to raise kids God's way. Remember that movement? And then I came here to Scottsdale Bible and I'm told, no, 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 it's grace-based parenting. That's how you raise your kids. And then I talked to my parents and they said, no, Dr. Spock, he had it right. You see, the reality is, is that we know the truth that we're supposed to raise godly kids. How you do so gets you quickly into gray areas. And then lastly, consider your finances. I mean, this is a checkbook. It's not a real one. I wouldn't do that to you. It's an empty checkbook, but it symbolizes our finances. And here's what the Bible says about finances. It's actually very life-giving. It says that it's all God's, that he's given it to you to enjoy, that you need to avoid debt as much as you can, and that you need to give generously. Those are the four inarguable truths the Bible says. It's all his, enjoy it, avoid debt, and give generously. But as soon as you understand that, you know what the question then becomes? Well, how much is enough? I mean, how much is enough for you to enjoy? Should you buy a second home? Should you have a third car? Should you take that lavish vacation? And as far as giving it away, how much should you give away? There are some Christians that are strict 10%. Others say, no, it should be more. Rarely say less. But the reality is, is that it gets gray. I simply need you to see this, guys. These represent our own Sabbath day issues today. Some of you are tempted to say, well, it must have been awfully petty for Jesus back then dealing with all of those things. The reality is we deal with them today. We have lots of gray area issues, and every gray area issue has something in common. It began with a clear truth, but in the interpretation of what this truth means, as well as the application on how to live it out, it's not always clear. And that's why it's gray. And what compounds it, and tell me this isn't true, is that even in giving these examples here, some of you feel very strongly about some of these issues. Amen? You do. And that's okay. 
You have history, you have experiences in, in which you have passion for these issues because of what you have been through. But that can also be a problem because you do feel strongly about them and you're going to have strong opinions about them. But it's not black and white. At the end of the day, they are gray and yet we have passion about them. So what do we do? What do we do when we have conflict over the gray? Other than telling people to bug off and go to heaven, which is not a good thing to do, how do we respond to gray area conflict in such a way that we might get clarity or even resolve when we have it? And believe it or not, Jesus helps us here. We're going to have to dig a little bit, but he helps us here a lot. So here's the second thing we learned from Mark chapter 2, and this is life-giving. And that is that when you respond to the gray, be biblical and be reasonable. When you respond to the gray, you'll see what I mean by this in a minute, Jesus shows us to notch up our biblical understanding that'll help us navigate the gray, but then also check your heart and ask yourself, how reasonable am I being and am I willing to reason with those around me as I navigate the gray? Now look at how Jesus teaches us this in verses 25 to 28. After the Pharisees get all bent out of shape about he and his disciples picking grain on the Sabbath, Jesus says this. It says, he said to them, have you never read what David did? Pause right there. He's going to the Bible. When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Have you not read that? And Jesus said to them, now he's going to reason with them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, believe it or not, though some of you have no idea what's going on here, we're going to parse it out here right now, this is very significant for you and I today. You're going to notice here that Jesus resorts to the Old Testament, the Bible, and then he reasons with them. And I'm going to suggest to you that this offers a paradigm, a pattern for you and I to follow as we navigate gray issues as well. First, notice with me that Jesus goes to the Bible. In verses 25 and 26 there, he references a story in the Old Testament that's found in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, in which David is on the run from King Saul. David's about ready to become king, but he's not yet. And he's on the run from King Saul. At one point, he comes to the town of Nob, he and his followers, and they have nothing to eat. So they go to the local priest, a guy by the name of Ahimelech, who was under the high priest Abiathar, and they ask Ahimelech for some bread. And Ahimelech says, the only bread I got is the consecrated, consecrated bread, which according to Leviticus 24 is only to be eaten on the Sabbath day by the priests, and you're not them. And David says, give it to me anyways, and he and his friend eat the bread. Now, that's a strange story for Jesus to reference, isn't it? I, I mean, at first glance you go, what is his point but what's he trying to say by referencing that biblical story? And now dial into this. What many Bible experts agree Jesus is getting at here is that by using this example from David's life, he is telling the Pharisees that their interpretation and their application of the law is narrow and rigid. That they had a narrow legalistic perspective on how the law is to be lived out in every single circumstance, not realizing that there's examples in the law itself, in the Bible itself, that do not fit their tight little categories. So in the example Jesus gives here from 1 Samuel, we have a law that at first glance seems like, okay, it needs to be applied in every situation like this, where David shows us, and Jesus points us out, that actually there's times where you need to follow the intent of the law, the spirit of the law, but not always in every scenario uh, this sort of technical rigid approach. And you're saying, is that really what's happening here? It's the way most Bible experts see it. And let me just read for you what some of the Bible experts say about this passage, and you'll see what I mean. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says it this way. Although the action was, of David was contrary to the law, he was not condemned for it. Jesus does not claim that the Sabbath law has not been technically broken by he and his disciples, but that such violations under certain circumstances are warranted. 
or as the conservative Bible knowledge commentary says it, the spirit of the law in respect to human need took priority over its ceremonial regulations. In other words, there are certain instances where the law would be applied differently. So in tying this to the Pharisees, listen to how William Lane, in his lengthy commentary on Mark, puts it. This is good. He says, the fact that God does not condemn David for his actions indicates that the narrowness with which the scribes interpreted the law was not in accordance with the tenor of Scripture. Jesus argues that the tradition of the Pharisees is unduly stringent and exceeds the intention of the law. So don't miss what Jesus is doing here, guys. By the example of David and the application of Leviticus 24, Jesus was basically saying that when it came to Sabbath regulations, that yes, people need to regularly rest from work. That was the intent of the Sabbath. But in applying it, Jesus is saying it's going to look different at different times. And even though it might look like I'm breaking it, I'm not breaking the intent of the Sabbath law at all. In fact, I'm living out Sabbath. We're resting on this day, just not in the way that you think that we should rest. He's saying the various Pharisees had veered from the intent of the Sabbath command and gotten petty and legalistic. And he points to Scripture to help clarify the gray. It's a brilliant thing Jesus is doing here. Now, hang on to that and notice before we put this together for you and me today that Jesus then adds logic and reason to this as well. In verse 27 there, he says, for man was made for the Sabbath, not the Sabbath for man. What does he mean by that? He's using philosophical reason there. He's simply saying that the Sabbath was made for man's benefit, so man can rest and rejuvenate and get in touch with God again. It wasn't made to be some legalistic thing that you obey for obedience sake. In other words, Jesus is saying there's rhyme and reason to the Sabbath, and we're still keeping it. And he reasons with the Pharisees, saying that we're living its intent here because it's all about rest. And just because we're snitching a little grain doesn't mean that we're breaking it because it was made for us. Don't miss this, folks. In responding to the grave, Jesus got biblical and he tried to reason with the Pharisees in order to navigate the rough waters of gray area conflict. And in so doing, very quickly, notice he did so with evident humility. He wasn't defensive. He wasn't in their face. He didn't call them names. He simply reasoned with them from the scriptures to try to navigate this gray area conflict. And the point is clear that you and I today need to have a likewise response when gray issues parade in and out of our lifestyle and our relationships and our lives, we likewise should be biblical and reasonable when we experience these gray areas and conflict around us because here's what will happen. Now, don't miss this. We're now at the mountaintop. If you dare to be biblical and you dare to be reasonable, there will be times in so doing that you will help others see your point. That's what Jesus was doing here. However, there's going to be times when you are biblical and reasonable, and you know what God's going to do? He's going to help you see their points. He's going to help you realize that because this is gray, that you're the one who is wrong, and because you had the guts to look at it from a biblical and reasonable standpoint, he just might show you that. I asked my wife, Kim, this week if I could share our most recent bout of conflict with all of you. It's very, very fresh, like as of three or four days ago, and she said I could, which I'm thankful that she did. And, uh, and it's actually kind of funny, halfway through the illustration in the last hour, she walked out, which I did not see as a good sign. <laughs> and so I called her in between services, and I said, am I okay? And she said, somebody fainted, and I went to the hospital with them. And so, bless her heart, she uh, decided to do that. I I, I skated under that one, man. I thought it was about me. <laughs> one of the things that I love in my life is cars. Some of you know that about me. I just love cars. It happened in fifth grade. I got my first mini bike. It had a three and a half horsepower Briggs and Stratton engine on it. And I became a forever gearhead. And, and, and ever since then, I've loved anything with an engine. And now that I drive, I, I love cars. And I feel at the age of 50 that I do have my priorities right. I mean, every day I wake up and I live life like this. God, Kim, 
family and kids, church and cars. That's my order of love. Somebody said to me recently, well, where are your friends in that? Let me repeat that. God, uh, Kim, uh, family, church, cars, and then if I have time, friends. And that's the kind of the way that I live. I'm kind of teasing, kind of. And, and, and so recently I was on a trip and um, somebody asked me, a, good, a dear friend, uh, you know, how many cars have you owned in your life? And I thought, oh boy, dare we add this up? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I mean, so we spent about two hours uh, listing all the cars, literally, that, that I have owned, uh, had title to since I started driving. And my very first car was a 65 Dodge Cornette with a two-barrel 361 under the hood. And uh, I recently, you'll hear about it in a minute, drive a, a, a Nissan sports car. We listed on my phone, we spent a couple hours in order, every car that I've ever owned. And, and, and it came out to 47 cars that I have owned in 34 years of, of driving. Now, some of you women are very upset with me right now because I just gave your husband tremendous ammunition when it comes to <laughs> his desire to have more cars. But I, I would say, and, and Kim has been with me, by the way, for 41 of these cars, we've been married 26 years, that, I, I mean, I just get bored. I, I don't like to drive a car for a very long time, and I hardly ever buy a new car. Because if you're going to trade up all the time, you've got to have a tremendous amount of money to do that. I, I buy high-quality used cars that I search for a very long time to get a good deal. I buy them low and I sell high, and, and I've been able to do that without being too much of a financial strain on my family. And it's just my hobby. I mean, honestly, on my day off sometimes, the other day on my day off, I was in Glendale in a used car lot alone. And again, that says about the friends thing. And, and I was just... <laughs> You know, that was relaxing for me, uh, to just stroll through a used car lot. That's what I do. I'm a car guy. I'm re constantly fiddling with them, and it's, and it's my hobby. Uh, I currently drive a 10-year-old Nissan. That's what I tell people. What they don't know is that it's a Nissan 350Z. But you can just tell people that your pastor drives a 10-year-old Nissan. I bought it seven years ago with 44,000 miles on it. And I got a great deal on it, and uh, the blue book is still strong on it. I didn't pay a ton of money for it, but I took out a small loan, and I paid it off very, very quickly within about a year and a half. And it's a car that we own that's paid for. And the other day, I was driving down the road with Kim about six months ago, and I said, you know, it's been two and a half years since I had this car. I think I'm going to sell the Z and get something else. And very casually, Kim said, no, I don't want you to do that. She says, it's paid for, I like the car, I think we should keep it. And I remember thinking to myself at that time, well, it's obviously a bad time to bring this up for whatever reason, so I'll revisit it in a couple of weeks. <laughs> and so about two weeks later, we were watching NCIS, which is our normal routine on a Tuesday night, and um, at the commercial, I pushed pause and mute, and I said, hey, you know, I was thinking about the Z again, and I was thinking I really would like to sell it and get something different. This time she turned her head to me and she looked at me and she said, no, I don't want to sell this. I said, why don't you want to sell it? It's not your car. And she said to me, she said, look, we got two kids in college. We're, we're trying to save a lot more now that we're in our 50s and it's not a good time. It's paid off. It doesn't have high mileage. It's not costing us a lot of money. If you trade it up, you might take out another loan. It's not a good time to do it. Plus, I like the car, and I think we should drive it into the ground. And I was like, drive it into the ground? Who does that? I just thought, you know, I don't want to drive it into the ground. And she said to me at that moment, she said, you know what, if you don't like it so much that when my lease is up, we lease Kim and Honda Accord, she said, well, my lease is up this spring, you can give me the Z and you can get what you want. And I remember thinking at that time, I didn't say this, man, but I thought to myself, give you a 288 horsepower car? That'd be like giving a toddler a blowtorch. I just wouldn't do something like that. I didn't say that. I thought that. And, and I just thought, you know, that does, it doesn't fit. And, and then I thought to myself, and I did say this to her, I said, honey, it's, it's not a practical car for you. I said, you're a school teacher, you load up the car, you get door dings, this would not be the right car for you. And she said, I don't care. I like it, I don't want to get rid of it. Either you keep it or I keep it. Those are the choices before us. So I was like, all right. It must have been a bad time again to bring it up. <laughs> So along went about three months later, and I'm agonizing over this. And so just a couple of weeks ago, I brought it up again. I'm very persistent. And I said, hey, I, I know you don't want to sell, but I really do. I have fun with these things. I really want to, to get rid of the Z. And she said, look, stop bringing it up. I don't want to sell the Z. 
I really think we should keep it. So what do I do? I mean, I, I was coming into this week talking about conflict over the gray. This is my conflict over the gray. And, and so what do I do? So I sat in my office this week and I thought, well, I got a few options before me. Here, here's my first option. Some of you men will relate to this. I thought I could pull an Ephesians 5 on her. <laughs> Ephesians 5 says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And I could claim male authority, but I'm guessing that wouldn't go over well on this issue. And it wouldn't be how I function in our marriage anyways over something like that, so I crossed that one off the list. The second thing I could do, and I literally thought of this, is I know what a lot of men would do, and that's to just do it and let it blow over. She's going to forgive me. I mean, she's not going to leave me over this, I don't think. And so, you know what? She'll come home one day, the Z is gone, I got a nice new car, and she'll get over it. Uh, but as I mentioned to you, um, Kim has allowed me, <laughs> in 26 years of marriage, to transfer cars 41 times. She's been an amazing wife that way. And we have a rule in our marriage, and that is that we do not spend over $100 unless we agree on it. That's been our rule since day one. And, and we really don't, unless it's budgeted money, which is budgeted, um, we don't do that. So if I was to do that, that would be a first time I ever did that. And it would really go against the, the, the core of our marriage. So I X that one off the list. So then I thought, and, and you're going to see where I'm going with this. I thought, you know what? I, I'm working on my sermon outline for this week. I think I'm going to be biblical and reasonable with her. I did. I thought, you know, I, I'm going to reason with this woman. and I'm going to bring in the Bible. And let's see if I can't sway her that way. I really did. I thought, Let, let's apply what I'm talking about on Sunday. So before I went to her, I thought I better get my, uh, my, my stuff together. So I sat down and I thought about what I could bring in from the Bible that would allow me to do what I want to do. <laughs> so I thought about money. And I thought, you know, hey, it's all God's. It's His. And He's given it to me to enjoy. And this would help me enjoy and then I thought this, and I'm to avoid debt as much as I can. I got two kids in college. We're doing pretty well. We've been very wise. And it probably would not be a good thing to go into debt. Plus, when it comes to finances, you should be unified with your spouse on this. And you know what I came to the conclusion was pretty quickly? Is that she's got an edge on me biblically when it comes to this issue. I did. As a leader in our family, as I looked at what the Bible said, I realized if I had to be honest... She is probably on just slightly better biblical grounds than I am. So then I thought, well, then let's be reasonable about this. <laughs> I thought, hey, you know, I've been doing this for 41 cars, for 26 years of marriage, for 34 years of driving. Come on, let's be reasonable about this, Kim. And you know what thought hit me, and I think this was from God? Is that the Lord said, she's allowed you to transfer title 41 times. This is the first time that she has ever said, I really don't want you to do this. And if you were to do this, Jamie, who's being unreasonable now? And I thought, oh, stink. <laughs> being biblical and reasonable gave me my answer with utter clarity. I need to let it go. I need to suffer by driving my Z for a little longer. <laughs> and not make a big deal of this, at least for another six months till I bring it up again. <laughs> now, some of you are saying, I know how you think, well, Jamie, okay, that's a funny example. It's a silly example. It's a rather shallow example, though I'd argue that we argue over much uh, shallower things than this. But you know what I've realized is that the reason I tell you that story is that I have found that, that, that when it comes to being biblical and reasonable, this really works in a lot of gray area issues. It really does. I navigated almost all of the 90s with two churches on the worship wars. Some of you remember that, when music started to change in the church. And it was a big deal, and it was really difficult. We went from enlightenment-based hymns and organ and traditional music to, I used to say everything changed with Elvis, you know, to now this rock-based music. And it was very difficult for the church. You know what allowed me to navigate it with my two churches in the 90s? Being biblical and reasonable. 
I had more conversations with people, taking them to Psalm 150 and the different instruments used and just, and just reasoning with people over time. And we were able to navigate the waters. And sometimes I would move much slower because I sensed we needed it. Other times I would say, hey, we're going to reason faster, move faster. But it worked. And I'm telling you, many of our gray area conflicts would be easy, more easily resolved if all of us would be biblical and reasonable. And sometimes you might get others to see your point, and other times God might help you see their point. But you're following Jesus in this nonetheless. Now, again, one last thought. I know what some of you are thinking. You think, well, Jamie, okay, it does work sometimes, but it doesn't work all the time. I mean, it's not going to work with Jesus here. I'm reading ahead, and they're still going to have disagreement with him. And you're right. So here's the last thing I want to share with you here this, today, and that is that when all else fails, you're to strive to agree to disagree. That's your ace in the hole. That is what you do as a mature Christ follower at the end of the day. If you can't agree, if you can't navigate toward clarity with the gray area, you agree to disagree. Now, some of you are saying, where is that found in this passage? It actually is there. You just have to look kind of closely. And it's actually kind of funny how it's there. But look at how Jesus ends this passage before us. I love this. Look at verse 28. It says, Jesus says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, now what's he mean by that? I mean, he just got done being biblical, and he just got done being reasonable, and then he caps it off by saying, so the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. Here's my take on this, and this I got from my study. And that is that as Jesus, Jesus is essentially saying here, look, I've been biblical with you guys, I've been reasonable with you guys, at the end of the day, if that doesn't work, try this one on for size. I'm God. Does that help? I'm the son of man from the book of Daniel that shows deity, and I'm Lord of the Sabbath over all creation. So if you're not convinced by being biblical, if you're not convinced by being reasonable, then I'm God, case closed. I think that's what Jesus is doing here in verse 28. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you and I pull a verse 28 on those around us, yes or no? No, we can't. I know some of you try, but you can't. You can't claim God's status. You can't pull the deity card with those around you. It's not going to work. So what do we do? We apply Romans 12, uh, verse 18, where Paul the Apostle says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. See, that's what you and I do. In being biblical and reasonable, at the end of the day, if that doesn't work, we still want to keep the bond of unity and the bond of peace. And we do that by, at the end of the day, saying, I love you. I'm sorry I can't see my way through this with you, but can we please agree to disagree? I've done all I can to bring peace, and I'm hoping we can agree to disagree. Closing story, and then we're done. When I was leaving uh, Cleveland seven years ago, I did something that I've done here a few times, and that's that uh, pending an upcoming election, I make a few comments on how, what values I think Christians should utilize in the voting booth. And so as I was uh, leaving Cleveland there, the, the previous election, I, I got up on, on Sunday in front of my church there in Cleveland, and I said, you know, I don't tell people how to vote, I don't tell you to vote for, but I do ask you to take your Christian values into the voting booth and that the values you and I have, my top three that I think are very biblical is the right to life, protection of the unborn, the definition of marriage and what the Bible says about that, and then religious freedom, which God holds very dear, that people make a, a choice to follow him or not. And, and that I ask people when they vote, you heard me say it here recently, to, to vote with those values in mind. I went off just fine, and I then preached my sermon. That week, I got an email from a dear lady in the church who uh, was very put off by what I said. And in her email, she disagreed with me over this. She said, you know, I, I appreciated your three top values, but it obviously reveals that you're a right-wing Republican. And uh, she said, you know, you forgot to mention other values, like the poor and gender equality, and racial discrimination, and how about just war and foreign policy? She says, you know, you just want the party line with, uh, if you will, the Republicans, and you said you weren't going to tell us how to vote, but you kind of did, and she said you forgot to mention all these other things. And, and you know, I, I wish her and I could have sat down and talked about it, because I would have said, well, you're right, the values I have might collate a little bit more over here, but which came first, the chicken or the egg? 
I, I mean, it really wasn't because I happened to agree with a particular party. It's really because I read the Bible, and I believe that though the poor and racial issues are, are very important, if I had to list the ones that are just driving culture right now, I, I firmly do believe that 50 million babies that have been lost in America is a huge deal and that we're going to be held accountable for that. And that shouldn't surprise anybody that I stand by that and that that drives me and a few other things in, in, in the voting booth. I would have had that conversation with her. Uh, but I was deeply touched at how she ended the email. And this is the one that made all the difference. Because, again, we're in a gray area conflict here. We're, 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 we're not agreeing together. She closes the email by this. She says, I appreciate you taking the time to read my comments, which I really hope in no way offended you. And I remember thinking, well, you, you call me a right-wing Republican, but I'm okay with that, you know. <laughs> and she said, because they sincerely were not intended to do so. I just wanted you to hear a couple of things from a Christian who doesn't exactly walk the right-wing line like you do, with hopes that you might consider some of these points next time you discuss voting values. Despite what may seem like opposing views, you certainly haven't lost someone who considers themselves a part of our church family together. And I got to tell you, everything that I felt, every little bristle that came up earlier in the email melted away with that last paragraph. Because what was she was saying? She was saying, Pastor, I love you. And we can agree to disagree. I came out strong. I made my point. And whether we can agree or not, at the end of the day, we can agree to disagree. And forever, that lady is my hero. Because I think that is Christian maturity. I think some of you just this week need to apply that. I think some of you need to take the first step with somebody that you've been at loggerheads with and you've tried to be biblical, you've tried to be reasonable, and it hasn't worked. That happens. This is life. And, and one of you is going to have to take the first step and say, hey, can we just agree to disagree? Can we keep the spirit of unity and the bond of peace? Because God really wants that for us. And, and even if we can't resolve this can we at least be okay with this? And as my dad coined years ago, when my dad and I have so many gray issues we disagree on, he said, let's just spend the rest of our lives walking sensitively around the issues. I like that phrase, walking sensitively around the issues. For my dad and I, when mom leaves the room out of exasperation, we know we're not walking sensitively around the issues. And I think that's a way to keep love and unity and grace, even in the midst of our conflict. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you that all you are to us. And Lord, even that you show us truth, even God, when it gets very muddy. And Father, I pray that for any of us who are in those murky waters, that tunnel of chaos with conflict over the gray, that God today might help add some clarity to it. May we at the very least be comforted by the fact that our Savior, whom we follow, dealt spot on with this. And that Lord, as he did, he went to the Word and got biblical and he got very reasonable with people. And Lord, may we follow suit. And Lord, in so doing, may you sometimes help others see what we're trying to say. And Lord, may you even work in our own hearts and minds and maybe help us see what others are trying to say. Lord, may you bring unity through your Word and through us being reasonable and humble. And I pray, Father, as well, that if that doesn't even work, God, I pray that you would help us to be men and women who can agree to disagree and keep the spirit of unity, the bond of peace, which is so precious to Jesus uh, here in our body and with those that we love. So that's our prayer. Move in our midst, we pray. We pray these in, things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.